0: Well, our text this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter four. We kind of pick up in the middle of the story. This is the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. Scott, is there a way that we can get rid of that? I don't know if the mic's too hot or if the reverb's up or something, but there, much better. All right, uh, John chapter four. Uh, we're in the middle of the story of the woman at the well, and uh, she's speaking with Jesus, and after he tells her, uh, go get your husband, and she says, I don't have a husband, and he says, you're right, you've got five husbands, and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband, who says the Bible's not relevant to our situation today. Uh, she immediately switches the discussion to religion, and uh, so we pick up in the, in the middle But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Lord, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us, that you would show us yourself in your word, and that you would show us ourselves in your word, that it would go forth and correct, rebuke, exhort, and train in righteousness. For Jesus' name and his sake we ask it. Amen. So in uh, December of 2011, I went to the movies with some friends of mine. and As we sat there watching the previews of the coming attractions, I saw the first trailer for The Hobbit, the first Hobbit movie, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. And they were advertising this movie a year in advance, and I was just transfixed. I mean, the only stories that I like better than Tolkien stories, are C.S. Lewis's stories. And even then, very often, it's kind of a close-run thing. And Peter Jackson is an amazing filmmaker who obviously loves Tolkien as much as anyone alive. And so that I, I, I knew then that the movie would really be well done. And that trailer lasts for almost three minutes. And as it unfolded on the screen, I got chills up and down my spine. Oh, I could not wait. And right at the heart of the trailer is a song. And it's sung by the dwarves. And it's the Misty Mountain song. And I, I just want to play it for you real quick. It's only, it, it's a very short clip, but go ahead and cue that up and, and play that so everybody knows what I'm talking about. love it. And I can remember as the movie got closer and they released more and more stuff on the internet and that song just kept weaving its way through my life. My children were young enough that I could do stuff to them and they couldn't protest too much. And so I'd sing that song to them and I'd make them sing it with me. And everybody, I was just so excited because I love those movies. It's interesting to me that even 10 years later, I still get um, little shivers uh, feelings of, of happiness, these shivers of pleasure uh, from the, the song and from the movie trailers. I, sa- I sat in my office on Wednesday trying to find the best clip for the video and I watched a bunch of the trailers and I just got engrossed in them all over again. But the focal point for me still is that song. And I like the feelings that I get when I hear that song. And of course, it's not just that song that gives me those kind of feelings. There are other songs that will have a similar effect on me. For instance, I, I loved the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And almost every song on that soundtrack is just amazing. And I get all these little shivers, I am a man of constant sorrow, and you're just like, Whoa. And, and it, and I like, I love good traditional country music, not this Nashville poppy stuff that, that we're going suffering through today. But, but I like music where that fiddle just cries, where that banjo is just high and thin, I love that. And, and there are a few pop songs or rock songs that will do it for me too. When I was in college, the most expensive traffic ticket I ever got came because of a, a song by a group called Roxette called She's Got the Look. And I was driving when it came on and I just got a little too excited. And, uh, and I lost a job because of that traffic ticket in the providence of God. Uh, most, uh, most U2 songs from the 80s will do it to me too. Um, after the Joshua Tree, they kind of lost me. But uh, the early stuff I love. And then there are, I, I just like music in general. I'm not very educated about it, but I, but I like it. And there are several classical pieces that will give me the shivers as well. Pachelbel's Canon in D, which is often played at weddings, is I think one of the most beautiful things ever written. And there's a, there's a tune called Finlandia by a 19th century Finnish composer named Sibelius, and, uh, and that has turned into a hymn. And I love that one, and, and almost anything by Edvard Grieg. And if you grew up watching like Looney Tunes cartoons, you'll find that you know a lot more about classical than you thought. Like last night, my wife was just playing Pandora, and she was like, can you name that one? And I, I could get, I, could, I, I, got, I got Vivaldi's Spring, and I got Carmen, and I got a few others. And of course, because I'm a Christian, And I frequently attend the worship, the public worship of the people of God. There are lots of Christian songs, both very old and very new, that bring this intense pleasure, this feeling of pleasure to me. Uh, So much so that my voice sometimes cracks, and I can barely sing, and I have to fight back tears. For example, in 20 years of singing in Christ alone, I have literally never successfully gotten through the last stanza. Where it says, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns and calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. I've never gotten through that without my voice cracking. I've stopped singing. That's why I want Scott to cut my microphone when we're singing. And, 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 but it's not just the new songs that do it. Like, Be Thou My Vision, I, I love that. Riches I heed not, or man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance, thou in all ways. And you realize that, that our brothers and sisters, our ancestors in Christ in Ireland were singing that when the Vikings were raiding their shores and pillaging the monasteries and slaughtering people. And they're singing to God. And we've got that as this precious heritage that that they pass that on to us. Songs for living and songs for dying. Now, if if I were a betting man, I would say that most of the people in this room have experienced something similar to what I've experienced. But have you ever thought carefully about what's happening when you get those little chills or those sensations of intense pleasure? I did some research, brain scientists call that pleasurable feeling euphoria. And and it it can have lots of triggers. Uh, For instance, physical touch can trigger it, certain drugs can trigger it, certain foods can trigger it. Apparently that's why you women like chocolate so much because it gives you a little bit of euphoria. And music is a powerful trigger. As a matter of fact, there's a whole subset of studies in brain science about music-induced Euphoria. And brain scientists have linked it to a chemical that your brain produces called dopamine. And it's an important chemical. And there are certain areas in your brain apparently that are called hedonic hotspots. And and they're the pleasure centers of your brain and they're linked together. And when one of them lights up, well, that's, that's nice, but it's no big deal but when we get the reaction that produces euphoria what's happening is one lights up and then another and then another and then another because they're all linked together and and then you get this state this feeling this pleasant feeling called euphoria and if you get that tingly pleasant feeling that some people do uh, we call it sometimes the chills those are called frisions. And during frisions, your skin is actually responding as it would when you get cold. Uh, you get goosebumps, the, the hair stands on it and you shiver slightly, but it's, it's pleasant. It's not unpleasant. Now, those of us who experience this may not realize it, but not everyone has this reaction. Only about half to two thirds of the population has it. And when they begin to study the brains of those who do versus the brains of those who don't, Scans show some interesting differences. There there are more nerve fibers connecting the parts of the brain that processes sound to the parts of the brain that processes sensation, and then to the part that processes emotions. There's stronger connections there. So sound plus sensation plus emotion means you get more. And surprisingly, people who tended towards, for instance, autism spectrum disorder seem to experience Frisions more often and more intensely. There's apparently, I didn't know this, but my daughter introduced me to it. There's this whole thing on YouTube called ASMR. Anybody ever heard of this? Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's like it's like these videos of people like just in the microphone going, and somehow somebody likes that. I don't know, it's weird, but but, but there's this whole group of people that just love that. And in his book, Beethoven's Anvil, a scientist named Dr. William Benzon argues that this euphoric feeling is one of the main things that drives the brain to create music. That, that when people create music, they, they have especially strong connections in their brain with these three areas and, and they, they get pleasure out of it. And that's why they do it. And since there's no culture anywhere in history that does not have music of some kind That seems credible to me. There are all kinds of other things that we could say about this. It's, It's important and it's wonderful. In the wisdom and goodness of God, he's given human beings a unique gift whereby a person with the right gifts and talents can craft music in the pursuit of his or her own feelings of euphoria. And then they can take what they've crafted and they can share it with other people and they can gift them with those feelings of euphoria. It's not only harmless, it actually seems to be healthy. It seems to increase psychological well-being. But like every good gift of God, we fallen human beings have abused it. For, For instance, scientists have noticed that music isn't the only thing that can generate euphoria. Poetry can, art can, literature can. And for the last few hundred years in Western Europe, we've asserted that people who have euphoric responses to art, or literature, or poetry, or certain kinds of music like classical music, or now these days jazz is considered kind of an upscale, tasteful expression. Well, those people are better people. They're more sophisticated. They're more refined. They're more intelligent. They're, they're morally or aesthetically superior. They're noble, they're sensitive. And in response to that, a bunch of wannabe sophisticates who don't really like art or poetry or classical music at all, pretend to because those are the things that the right kind of people like, and they wanna be included in the crowd with the right kind of people. And so there's a kind of a snob appeal. Um, I, I like to go to the symphony. And uh, and it can get pretty snobby at the symphony, and then when you graduate to the opera, like we went to the opera in Cincinnati a couple times. There's a good opera there. Well, the snob appeal even goes a little higher. And people, oh, these are the quality people. These are the intelligentsia of Cincinnati. I, I fit in here quite nicely, don't I? And and so you get this kind of snob appeal. And in reaction to that kind of snobbery, you have a whole other set of sins where the front porch banjo pickers and the fiddle players and the garage band rockers and the street poet rappers um, all assert their superiority because they're the people who understand how real life actually is and how the world really works. And they understand that it's stacked against them by these powerful fake fat cats at the symphony and they're singing about their strength and their authenticity and their pride, which is sinful. When in reality, everyone is just chasing their dopamine high and there's really no more value in one way of doing it rather than another. They're just pursuing what works for them and what's available to them. But I think there's another more pernicious evil that's arisen among the people of God in our modern context. In defiance of everything that the scripture says about the worship of God, the devil has convinced many of us of several things that are actually not true. The first lie that the devil has caused us to swallow is that this sensation of euphoria is spiritually significant. In other words, if I have these feelings, it means that God has showed up, that he is now present to me and I'm experiencing him in a way that I normally do not. Now that's a very old worldwide error. It's one of the reasons why spiritually important ceremonies in many cultures are centered around, for instance, drumming. The drums in both the African and the Native American context are thought to be the homes of spirits who come out when the drum is played correctly and then the dancers and the drummers get to experience those spirits because the drumming produces euphoria certain drugs will interact with dopamine receptors in a in a similar way and they can induce so-called spiritual experiences and so there's this whole subset of people that go around the world trying these different substances like ayahuasca in Peru or peyote and jimson weed and marijuana in the American Southwest. There are certain mushrooms that grow worldwide that are often used in religious ceremonies because they generate visions and this feeling of euphoria and it's thought to be spiritually significant. Um, Today, modern people who use LSD or angel dust sometimes report similar sensations. And so strong is the connection in the Greek mind between mind-altering substances and contact with the spirit world that their word for sorcery in Greek in the Bible is pharmakia, from which we get our word pharmacy. But if you think about it, this sensation can't be spiritually significant Because it can be and is produced by songs and other creative modes of communication that don't have anything to do with God. Like the Hobbit song. I was just listening to the Hobbit song when we were just playing, I was like, I like that. It doesn't have anything to do with God. I I intentionally had uh, had, uh, Aaron and Michael put create in me a clean heart and she, she said, it kind of rem- I remember looking at that and it kind of reminded me of the Hobbit song. I said, that was on purpose because I wanted to give you a Christian song that has some similarity that also gives me the little woo sometimes when I hear it or sing it and the Hobbit song. What do they have in common? They both sound like this. For some reason, that does it for me. I don't know why. I'm weird, I admit it. But there's another lie, and the second lie is even more pernicious, and it builds on the first, and it's this. If I think music-induced euphoria is spiritually significant, then I'm liable to believe that the whole function of the worship service is to make me experience that euphoria. And then the dominoes really begin to fall, because when we've convinced ourselves that, that the function of the worship service is to make me feel these feelings, then we can be convinced that we're seeking God when what we're really seeking is nothing of the sort. It's a, what we're really seeking is to make some glands in your brain squirt. And, and we end up worshiping not God, but our own dopamine rush. You see, Christian worship is not a glandular condition. Christian joy is not a glandular condition. Worship is about God. You look at all the worship of God in the Bible, and it doesn't say anything about the feelings that are produced in me while I worship. It's obsessed with God. Christian joy, then, is based on worship, and what Christian joy is, is this pervasive sense of settled happiness and well-being that comes from seeing God clearly and recognizing my place of security and privilege in him. And so worship and joy then are intricately connected because when I worship God, I'm literally lifting him up, I'm lifting him up to public view, I'm pointing out all of his magnificent qualities, all of his magnificent deeds, and I'm saying, This is my God. This almighty God, the glorious wise being, has my back. He's pledged himself to me. He has said in his word, may I be torn in two if I break any single promise I have made to you. So even though in this world I'm poor, or I'm sick, or I'm weakening, or I'm aging and things aren't going well, or I've screwed up my life so bad with my bad decisions, yet in him, I'm okay, I'm fine. Nothing can touch me. Nothing can happen to me that he can't redeem and turn into good. And my soul therefore is at peace. Now that is joy, that is Christian joy You you wanna hear something weird? Paul says in one verse, I think it's in, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So joy, in Paul's mind, is consistent with tears. Why? Because joy isn't about what I'm feeling now that's generating the tears, joy is deeper down and it's saying even though there are tears, it's all okay. The world is okay. God is in charge. I can rest in him. That's joy. That's, That's Christian joy. Now, realizing that might make your glands squirt. And if it does, that's fine. It's actually more than fine. It's wonderful. So long as you realize that the euphoria is a side effect and it has very little lasting significance and the joy and the worship are deeper down. But it it gets even worse, the devil's not done with us yet. Because since what makes our glands squirt is highly dependent on specific sorts of things, very specific musical styles, very specific instrument, very specific word pictures, it's really personal then and really idiosyncratic. And it depends on a whole host of, fa- of factors, not just biology, but things like gender and culture and experiences that you might have had that cast things in a positive light or a negative light. In other words, what makes your gland squirt is different from what makes my gland squirt. Now, the modern worship movement gets that, but instead of saying, okay, maybe we've gotten off course here and we need to rethink what they're doing, instead they double down. And and instead, I hear things, the sorts of things that I heard a PCA minister say at a church planting conference in Chicago one time. He said, everyone has the right to worship Jesus in their heart language. I listened to that. I was like, that is such high-sounding nonsense. Your heart language is English, and you have no rights when it comes to worship at all. What he's really saying is everyone has the right to split and rend and segregate the people of God until they sort themselves into little affinity groups based on what kinds of music makes their glands squirt. And that's just evil. That's like spiritual snobbery. And then there are some people who are like, oh, the worship moved me so much today and another person says yeah i wasn't into it and there must be something wrong with you are you even saved and devil just laughs not only that then we have another problem there's something called hedonic adjustment which means that the song that makes your glands squirt the first 3 or 4 times you sing it annoys the heck out of you by the 100th time you sing it unless there's a long time that passes between performances. And so there's got to be this steady stream of new songs and novel experiences, or your glands stop squirting, and you think the church is bereft of the Holy Spirit, and you abandon it in search of something different. But then not only that, as you age, you find that you start looking back over your life, and the world Today and the future seems more and more alien and your losses in life mount as you age. And so then the old and the familiar is that which makes your glands squirt. And so in those churches, nothing can ever change. And any change is an occasion for grief and loss because you're chasing a feeling. You're just chasing a sensation. And there are many other problems that we could point out. For instance, there's a big gender difference in what males and females respond to. And it just so happens that a lot of church music is really pitched at women rather than men. The music is not comfortable for men's lower voices. It's too high. And a lot of guys are kind of shy about singing anyway. And so when you put it all up here, we're like, I don't want to sing that. And so they sit there and they jingle the change in their pockets. And then the content of a lot of these songs is really borrowed from secular love songs. So much so that many guys have a hard time resonating with it at all, since it's being sung to God our Father and Christ our brother. There's been enough discomfort with this that a somewhat snarky label has been coined for these songs, and they're called the Jesus is my boyfriend songs. You can Google it, and there's all these people, all these guys ranting about the Jesus is my boyfriend songs. English theologian N.T. Wright called them teenage love songs about falling in love with Jesus. And a lot of guys just don't want to sing that stuff. Listen to some of these lines. All I need is just to be me, being in love with you. Or my world stops spinning around without you. Or, I never want to leave, I want to stay in your warm embrace. Or, you are my desire, no one else will do, because nothing else could take your place to feel the warmth of your embrace. There's one that's popular right now uh, by Crowder, and part of it goes, so we are his portion and he is our prize, drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes. If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. So heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss and my heart turns violently inside of my chest. I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about the way that he loves us. Now I like Crowder and I actually like that song but if you want to make your average guy run screaming from the church never to return ask him to sing that to another dude. So how are we supposed to escape this? Well, it's simple, really. It starts by accepting the fact that God is the one who's in charge of worship, that God is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, glands squirting is not spirit, it's body. And confusing the pleasurable sensations associated with glands squirting with worshiping God is not truth, it's a lie. Romans 12, one and two tells us what role the body has to play in spiritual worship. It's to be presented to God as a living sacrifice. Now when you sacrifice something, you are giving it over, you are relinquishing all claims of ownership And so all of our claims of ownership and control over our bodies are to be relinquished, to be turned over to God. And that includes the glands in our brains. And if God sees fit on a Sunday morning to light those up, praise God. And if he doesn't see fit to light those up, praise God. But even more important, we need to grasp the critical truth that worship does not exist to please us. It exists to please God. It it really doesn't matter if a certain song makes your glands light up or not, or if you like the structure of the service or not, or even if you like the sermon or not. The only relevant question is Did God like it? And God likes all kinds of things that you don't like. God likes old songs. God likes new songs. God likes pre-written prayers. And God likes free prayers. And there are also songs, both old and new, and prayers, both fixed and free, that God hates. And he's told us how to discern the difference. The reason it's called a worship Service is because we're here to serve God. God is the audience, and we're the choir. We're the the cast of the play, and he's the one who needs to be pleased with our worship, not us. He is the focus of everything. And if something happens that makes your glands squirt, thank him. If it doesn't, don't worry about it. Because something that you find pleasant will be coming along sooner or later again. And maybe the thing that you don't care for at all is a source of great delight for the person in the pew behind you. In which case you can thank God for his kindness to them. Just be patient. Just be wise. Just wait your turn. As C.S. Lewis says, If we cannot lay down our tastes along with other carnal baggage at the church door, surely we should at least bring them in to be humbled, and if necessary, modified, not to be indulged. But here's what I will tell you. If you come to God faithfully, week after week, if you humble yourself, if you empty yourself before him, if you prepare your hearts in advance to say, Lord, I am here to bow down before you to make you the focus of everything that I do and for you to fill me up with whatever you want to fill me up. If you keep doing that, if you seek to worship him in spirit and in truth, if you offer up your body as a living sacrifice to him, he will meet you. He will fill you. And you will experience deeper joy, deeper peace, deeper comfort. If you seek him, you will find him. If you seek him with all your heart. That's the promise of the word of God. And those who seek to keep their life, Jesus says, will lose it. But those who lose their life, who joyfully lay down their life for the sake of Christ and the sake of his gospel, will find it. Well, how are you ever going to lay down your physical life if you can't even lay down your whims and pleasures? You can't. You won't. You won't have the strength to do it. It starts by practicing on small things so that when the big things come along, we're trained and ready. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. If I have said anything that is untrue or unhelpful cause it to be forgotten. If I have said anything that is true and good and right cause it to be remembered. Cause it to go down into the inward parts of the person and to begin changing them from the inside out. In Jesus name Amen.